Hey everybody, Diane Bondi here and I'm really excited because today I am talking to my mentor, my yoga teacher, uh, my spiritual advisor, an incredible educator, Dr. Gail Parker. And you know what? I've had an ongoing relationship with Dr. Gail Parker for probably a, pretty close to a decade. And uh, how I met Dr. Gail Parker is I used to practice yoga uh, in Michigan, in Detroit. And I never saw yogis of color or teachers of color until I was in a class with Dr. Gail Parker. And I was trying to figure out how to meet her. I didn't want to invade her space, but I started, you know, reading her blog and following her and then literally maybe stalking her a little bit. We were both in the Anasara world together. So a lot of times we would be in class together, but we wouldn't have any real interaction. And then we went to a workshop at the CompuWare Center in downtown Detroit. We were seeing a very famous yoga teacher and I, I was in the change room and I saw Dr. Gail in the change room and nobody else was in the change room and I thought this is my opportunity because every time I would see her she would be in conversation or she would be around other folks and I would never get a chance to talk to her and with all my excitement and exuberance if you're not familiar with me I tend to be excitable and exuberant uh, I ran up on Dr. Gail Parker and she was like whoa she didn't know I had been stalking her and that I had written, or sorry, I had read a, a blog uh, about her the week before, and I got a chance to meet her. And that's how we came in contact with each other. And she was often one of the educators in my 200-hour teacher training program when I added a restorative yoga con um, component. And so we've been in each other's sphere for a long time. She has uh, recently written a book called Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma. She has lectured on this. She's been, she's um, talked about, you know, mental health and wellness as a psychotherapist for over 40 years. She's been on Oprah like six or seven times. Like she's very accomplished and I'm excited to call her friend. So I'm going to read a little bit about her bio. She is a C certified, um, international yoga teacher. She's an, she's a C-I-A-Y-T, so she's a yoga therapist, an author, a psychologist, and a yoga therapist educator. Uh, she's the author, of course, of the book I just showed you, uh, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma. This book came out last year in 2020, which was really helpful because we knew all that was going on in 2020 around race-based stress and trauma for the black community. Uh, she is the current president of the Black Yoga Teachers Alliance at, uh, Board of Directors, Board of Directors, her broad exp expertise in behavioral health and wellness includes 40 years as practicing as a psychologist. Dr. Parker is a lifelong practitioner of yoga and is well known for her pioneering efforts to blend psychology, yoga, and meditation as an effective self-care strategies that can enhance emotional balance and contribute to the overall health and well-being of uh, their practitioner or its practitioners. And so I'm excited to have her on the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. And she's going to talk about how yoga, meditation, and healing for race-based stress and injury is going to help not only people of color, not only black and brown folks, but all of us on the path to healing and intentional well-being. I can't wait for you all to hear and meet my friend, my colleague, my teacher, Dr. Gail Parker. Hey, everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. And I'm very excited, 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 excited to share with you my mentor, my friend, my teacher, 
um, my spiritual sister, Dr. Gail Parker, to the podcast today. One of the first people, I guess, along with my mom, who introduced me to being intentional in our practices around wellness uh, and, and gave me a really interesting perspective mm -hmm. on how to use yoga as a self-care practice and also as a peace practice, which I thought was really helpful to me because before any of this, I was always about power yoga. How can I get into a handstand faster? All those kinds of things. And I, I really did a 360 or 180 um, around some of the belief systems around yoga after practicing with Dr. Gail and reading her work. And I want to welcome her to the podcast today. Thank you, Gail, for being here. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It is always a pleasure. I love it. You and I, over the course of the last, I want to say maybe 10 years or so, have had different conversations. Like if you go to my YouTube channel, there's a conversation way back, maybe eight years ago on yeah. YouTube, uh, on other podcasts that I've done, you know, we've spoken, I've always referenced your work. I quote you weekly. I'm just grateful to have you in my life. And uh, I wanted to start with the big question I ask all my guests. What is the difference between wellness and well-being? What does that mean to you when you talk about the difference between those two things? So I think that um, wellness, when, when I think about wellness, I think about in terms of health. And health has traditionally been defined as um, the absence of disease or injury. Well-being is part of health and it's certainly part of wellness, but I think well-being is when every aspect of ourselves, our physical body, our breath body, as we say in yoga, our mental emotional body, our um, intuitive sense of being and our spiritual well-being are all in alignment. When they are when we're in harmony on that level, that's when you experience well-being. How often does that occur? Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, because because it's it's wellness is constantly changing. It's mm. not a static um, place. It's it's a dynamic place, and so our well being is dependent on our ability and our willingness to adapt to external changes and internal changes that are always ongoing. Wow. It's like being in balance. So. This is one of the reasons I love um, the yoga practice, because uh, if you're standing on uh, one foot, for example, if you lift a leg and you're standing on one foot, and in yoga we might call that tree position, uh, where you have your <clears throat> the sole of, of, of the lifted foot is on your inner thigh while you're trying to balance, if you'll pay attention to that, balance is not static. You're not, this is not what is happening here. <laughs> What's happening here is the continual adjustment to maintain that sense of equilibrium, mm. that place of harmony. So that's what well-being means to me when we're when we're paying attention to that sense of equilibrium and making the adjustments. And when we fall, <laughs> because. When as we, we fall, will, <laughs> as we will, that does yeah. it, it doesn't even mean then that there's no well-being. It means that that's that's though when you when you, as my mother would say, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. Mm -hmm. But we have all of these practices within the yoga uh, uh, 
pantheon, I guess, of practices. For example, I'm thinking child's pose now, mm. where this is this is an embodied experience of beginning again. Mm. I love Let's it. begin again. I love so it's it. that it's that it's that emotional, mental, physical flexibility and willingness to go to go with the flow. I think that's not hard for a lot of people to go with the flow. I think that was the one of the biggest lessons that I learned, especially being a practitioner of vinyasa yoga, was the ebb and the flow, how it moves with the breath. And I've never thought of well-being as that balance. What a great mm. analogy to be kind of teetering as I often do in tree pose and looking for that yes. center. And I've always thought of that as the spinning plates, right? Or a spinning top, a spinning top looks balanced and steady when it's spinning at its fastest. Yeah. And the minute it starts to fl- slow down, it gets that, you know, that oblong kind of, yeah. Wonky it wobbles. Yeah. 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 But it's still in balance, but it's mm-hmm. just trying to find its way back to that, that equilibrium. So what do you think are some of the obstacles for people um, in accessing well-being and accessing, you know, that balance. What keeps people from pursuing that? Especially especially black folks and people who have been historically excluded from most practices. Well, I would say that the, I'm going to give you the big answer here. Yeah, <laughs> I'll start with the big answer then we can narrow it down. The big answer for me is is I think that awareness is the medicine of health and well-being. Mm, yes. Brilliant. And without awareness, we don't have that experience because without awareness, you you don't necessarily know when you're wobbling or when you or that or that being still in one place is optimal. It isn't. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so it's it's our awareness, especially our internal awareness. So most of us, I'm assuming, know what's going on around us. But as a psychologist, what I learned over and over and over again, and it always surprised me, is the lack of awareness of what's going on within us and how that influences what's occurring around us. Wow. So I think the cultivation and, and what, when I teach, again, it's, it's one of the reasons I love yoga because this is now an embodied experience. It's not something that you're talking about or reading about. Mm-hmm. You're having an actual experience of awareness. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is where it hurts. Oh, this is where it's relaxed. Oh, this is what well-being feels like. Oh, this is what being tense and tight feels like. And with our awareness, when we can cultivate our mind as a tool of awareness, not a, not just a storehouse of information, now we're approaching well-being. Nice. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's how I see it. And that for me transcends race and ethnicity and culture. That's just a human capacity Mm. to cultivate self-awareness, particularly. That's what I'm, that's where my focus always is, self-awareness. And I think that was the biggest lesson that I learned from yoga. It's amazing to me how we can kind of just float through or 
trudge through wherever you are in your life through life and have actually no self-awareness of how we feel, what our breath is doing, how people are reacting to us. You know, if we need to step more fully into our life, if we need to pull back prior to jumping on the call, you and I were talking about clearing our schedule and minimizing our calendars a little bit and how excited, you know, you were and I was for you to have a calendar where you're not fully committed all the time. And I think for me last year, right after George Floyd was murdered, I spent the majority of my summer in conversation, mostly through workshops and all kinds of stuff, in conversation with people who had no no self-awareness of their place in the world and no bigger awareness of how people who are historically excluded or marginalized or underestimated have been moving through the world. So we, both of us, because this is a lot of our work intersects a lot of those places, both of us were like constantly on calls, constantly doing workshops and not, you know, I think for a long time I wasn't aware of how that was making me feel. And I felt like this summer was the summer of like, whoa, right? I'm going to take a little bit of a step back and observe instead of constantly being in the mix. Yeah. And, and it's that awareness that allowed you to do that. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was time. It's, it feels weird because I feel like, am I stalling? Should I be doing more? Like it's, it's that constant training, I guess, of the world that we need to be doing something, doing something, doing something, doing something. And one of my favorite uh, quotes from you is actually relax and do nothing. Just because mm-hmm. you're not doing anything doesn't mean that nothing is happening. And I, okay. I just remembered that, especially when you were teaching restorative yoga. So can you tell us for the listeners how you came to be uh, a yoga teacher and especially how you came to this modality? And in the introduction, I mentioned that uh, Dr. Gale has a wonderful book, Restorative Yoga for ethnic and race-based stress and trauma. This is the first installment, the first volume, and there's a second volume coming out November, right? November. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in November. And we're going to talk a little bit about this book, Life-Changing. My favorite chapter in this book um, around self-awareness is chapter four. And I think if you could really like dive into chapter four, it will give you great perspective if you're not part of um, this culture, or part of this ethnicity that we're talking about, what are some of the stressors that lead us to need a practice like this? So how did you come to do this work? How did you become a yoga teacher, a therapist? Like what inspires you to do this work? So as you know, I've been practicing yoga my entire adult life. And when I started practicing yoga, which has been for, uh, gosh, over 50 years, really. Mm. When I started practicing, there were no such things as yoga studios. I stumbled upon a class at uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts, where I was living at the time, being taught by a man. If we could screen share, which I know we, we can't and we don't need to, I would show you his picture, Mr. Black. His name was Mr. Black, and he wore a black suit and tie to teach us yoga. So we were not practicing the kind of yoga that is currently being taught, clearly. Right. Right. But it was a full practice. It was a complete practice, meaning it involved very gentle physical movements, mindful physical movements. Um, It involved breath, it involved um, self-awareness, self-realization, it involved, um, there was a a deep spiritual component. So that was how I was introduced to the practice. So in order, and and what ended up happening for me right away is I I felt this sense of inner peace that was Mm. 
very powerful. And that's what kept me going back. And the class only met once a week. And um, so I kept going back to the class. Um, and over time, I just continued the practice. I continued to teach myself how to do yoga because that's about all you could do in those days. I think the class lasted for a year. And then I don't know what happened to Mr. Actually, Mr. Black went up to Northern Michigan and founded a, a, uh, a, a retreat center. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Song of the morning retreat center, which is in Vanderbilt, Michigan, which is interesting anyway. Um, so I continued to teach myself yoga and continued the practice on my own until yoga studios began to proliferate, which was, I think, in the 90s. Mm, yep. And I was the first one at the door and enjoying mm. these very active, uh, athletic, physical mm. practices. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that I did not do those practices. I did uh, until I couldn't anymore, which is mm. <laughs> only only fairly recently. Right. Um, and enjoyed every minute of it. I, like many people, I decided I, I was so intrigued by the experience and what I was, what I felt inside myself. I wanted to learn more about what was going on. So I took a yoga teacher training. Hmm. And in that yoga teacher training, I was introduced to restorative yoga, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, restorative. Uh, it is it, it's a, a receptive form of yoga. It's not an active form of yoga where you are using props to support your body and holding postures in stillness and quiet for extended periods of time. It's delicious. <laughs> as you evoke the relaxation response, which yeah. is a real physiologic response. All right. So I didn't know that at the time. I'm just doing it. And and, and what was interesting is my yoga teacher, the woman who introduced me to uh, restorative yoga, would come uh, while I'm I'm supposed to be being still in one of these poses. I'm fidgeting. I'm you know, because it was hard to be still. Mm, it was yeah. really hard to be still. I have that problem too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she, I remember one time she came over and she just put her hand on me. She said, "Stop it." <laughs> so, out. <laughs> but I, I appreciated the practice. I got it. I really, really got it. I for example, had she not put her hand very gently on me and said, stop it. I don't know that I would have noticed I was fidgeting. Mm, I mean, I knew I was, but I didn't know it mattered. You know what I'm right. saying? I'm just, I'm yeah. just fidgeting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it, it just continued to bring me into deeper inner awareness and I mm. and all of a sudden the light bulb went on went off I'm a psychologist I have clients who don't know that they are that, that they don't have this awareness of the inner self they may intellectually like I did but they haven't physically felt it and I thought this is a perfect practice to invite people to come into that level of awareness that is beyond thought mm. and beyond language and beyond talking. Mm. So I never saw it as an either or proposition that you either do talk therapy or you do uh, yoga therapy, for example, ther yoga for a therapeutic reason. So I began to combine both. Uh, now, my clients were never coming to me to learn yoga. So I was not teaching them how to do yoga. I wasn't teaching them yoga postures. 
but I understood the philosophy. I understood the the potency and the impact and how breath and movement and just your body language are impacting what you're experiencing. And so I would, you know, invite people into that practice in that way. So, you know, somebody comes in, their shoulders are up here, mm. their eyes are bugging out. You, I say, how are you? They say, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, well, let's come on in. Let's have a seat. And before we get started, let's take, let's just do a little bit of breathing. I'll do it with you. Mm. And so we would do that. And then I was, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know, that's always available to you to, you know, when you notice that you're feeling a certain way, you can always come to your breath Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can feel better. So that would be the way I would introduce it. And then over time, you know, I, I began to do, you know, do more things like that. Um, and, and so it's just powerful. It's just effective. It was a beautiful addition to the therapeutic work I was already doing. I think it's, it's amazing. I run into so many um, psychotherapists, like in the eating disorder world, they'll be at a conference or, or what have you, and I'll be invited to do some kind of practice. And because we're in a conference room, or, you know, we're in a ballroom, and everybody's sitting on a chair, I will do something a little bit more restorative. I'll do I'll start mm-hmm. out with something really gentle so that people can get out of their heads and into their bodies. And then we'll dip down into something that's super restorative. And the amount of people fidgeting is always really interesting. I always take note of that because I tend to be a bit of a fidget or myself, which is why um, I think the active practice spoke to me for so long because it just like got all the fidgets out. And then I was able to like, you know, really come deep down into that awareness. But it was amazing to me how many clinicians would say to me that, wow, this was really powerful in my own you know, awareness of self. And I just thought to myself, this is a practice that maybe all clinicians should be at least doing personally. And I always would make reference to you. I said, you know, you know, a a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine is a psychotherapist and she uses these principles in her therapy with great success because we are like, I think perpetually disconnected from our breath and our body. I can't tell you many times, you know, I look at the back of my hand and I see a cut and I'm like, what did I do that? Or I hit my elbow and there's a bruise. I'm like, when did I do that? Like just so completely preoccupied with everything else in the world that I have no space for my own Mm self-awareness. And I think through this practice is the only way I've come to realize that. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. And that's, and and it's more than, and the realization is an embodied experience of Mm -hmm. it. It's not a thought. Yeah. It's it's a real physical experience of what we're talking about. And that can't be, you know, you can't you can't describe that to someone. You you, you have to do it. You you have to actually engage the practice. And I think people are maybe a little bit of it's afraid of being still, a little bit of afraid of, you know, dipping down into their self-awareness. I'm watching a lot of social justice activists um, out there in the world doing all the things, all the things, all the things, all the things. And I'm just wondering if they slow down and stop and take a few breaths, what will happen? Like, what are they afraid will happen if they take their foot off the gas for a minute? That is a good question. Right? That's a good question. Yeah. yeah, Like just for a second, if you Mm -hmm. took your foot off the gas, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of where Mm -hmm. I'm at this summer. 
easing back, which brings me to your book. Tell me the process. What inspired you to do this incredible, great piece of work? And I will link to it in the show notes where you could buy it and where you can pre-buy the next book. I've already, um, I've already pre-ordered my, my book. I need to have the box set because I, I think there might be a third. <laughs> uh, it's just such great work. You know, I'm for the I'm I'm looking away because I'm looking for some notes that I took, not really for this interview, but that I think are relevant. Um, I'll, I'll, I mean, it, it started before this, but in um, twenty when was it? When when in twenty fourteen, mm. Michael Brown was yes. murdered. Yes. Michael Brown is a young man in from Ferguson, Missouri. For those of you who need a reminder who was shot and killed and left in the street for hours before any shot and killed by a policeman. Uh, he was an unarmed young black man mm-hmm. before anybody um, came to even recover his remains. You know, it was pretty traumatic for everyone. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, we had been through Trayvon Martin's murder. We had been through, uh, I think Tamir Rice, Mm-hmm. Uh, was murdered the same year as Michael Brown. Uh, Jordan Davis, who uh, was shot in his car for playing his music too loud, mm-hmm. um, and murdered. And 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 it was so. Michael Brown's murder was it, it. It just made me realize I have to do something. I have to engage in this work um, to support people who are just overwhelmingly traumatized mm-hmm. by what's going on um, mm-hmm. to support them in finding a sense of well-being. See, here's the thing, even in the face, and this is what our yoga teaches us. And I've had the experience, even in the face of chaos, confusion, trauma, we can, there's a place within us that we can access. That is that place of well-being, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Yes. Believe it or not. Now, we don't, when you're in the midst of trauma and you've never done this before, this is not a good time to yeah. find that place, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. which is, yeah. if you've had years of practice, what ends up, and you know that place, then that's, that's your refuge. That's where you can go when everything is just seems so overwhelming. All right. So, anyway, I was at, actually, I was at a retreat, a yoga retreat. Uh, not a physical retreat, but it was a philosophical retreat. And the professor who was leading the retreat was enraged about Michael Brown's death and murder. Mm -hmm. And he was on a rant. He's a college professor. Also, he was on a rant about it and how, how offended he was by all of it. And I, I was the only black person in the room and the professor was white as well. And I'm looking around and these were people that I, that I knew and had been involved with for a long time. Everybody's on their cell phone Mm. or, you know, rummaging through this or kind of looking, you know, you could sit waiting for him to finish so they could get back to talking about um, the mythology of, you know, what we were there to talk about. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. that. Yeah. Right. And I realized in that instant, I thought, you know what? This is my work. I have to, I have to do something. I have to do something. They don't have to do anything. I have to do something. And I have to bring it into the yoga 
world and community that I associate with, because these are practices that black and brown people deserve to know about and be introduced to and share. All right. Mm -hmm. So that was where it started. In 2018, I was asked to be a keynote speaker at an international uh, yoga therapy alliance conference. About two months before that, the Starbucks incident occurred, where the two young men who were sitting in Starbucks, minding their own business, waiting for a business associate to arrive, were arrested for not ordering anything while they waited. And... I remember using that in this presentation that I made. And it was a very powerful presentation. And after the presentation, um, actually, and and the title of the presentation was White is a Color Too, because this organization was a 95% white organization. And at the time I wanted, I thought, you know what, if I'm going to talk to white people about this, I want them to understand first that, number one, this is a necessary conversation for us to have. That as the yoga world and actually the entire, but as the yoga world becomes more racially and ethnically diverse, mm-hmm. we need to be able to have the conversation mm-hmm. non-defensively. Yes. That's um, the word, non-defensively. Yes. Yeah, non-defensively <laughs> and yeah. constructively. And so, um, I, and I thought that in order to do that, you know, in a racialized culture, which is what we live in. hmm White people don't include themselves yeah. as a race. Yes, I found that too. So I'll get up. Let me just, this is a, a sidebar here about the DEI initiatives. Yes, Diversity. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think inclusivity, inclusivity should mean white people should include themselves in this stuff. That's brilliant. I don't think it means that yeah. white people should include black people. We know white people need to include themselves. That's the inclusivity. Agreed. To Agreed. recognize that, oh, I'm a white, oh, I have, oh, oh, I'm, I'm part a racialized of this conversation. Being. I'm a racialized being too. All right. Yes. Oh. What is my relationship to my own race and ethnicity? Not how do I help, not, not how do I understand you black people or brown people and help you, but how do I understand me and my own and help me and my own? Agreed. I that's, think that's brilliant. Yeah. All right. So we all have our work to do. Yes. Anyway, after this presentation, I was approached by a publisher who said, you need to write a book. I said, a book? <laughs> I said, it's a 20-minute talk. She yeah. said, no, it's a book. Yeah, yeah. like, pardon said, me? No, it's, a book. it's a book. I said, nice. okay. So I thought about it. I was afraid, actually, yeah. Yeah, to do it that. for a variety of reasons. It's a lot of work. Um, but be- uh, largely because of that, ex- my experience of the indifference to the topic that a lot of, in my experience, white people have displayed. Yes. And that is painful to me. Yes. Because it's an important topic to me. Yes. It involves my experience of myself, my identity. Um, And I just didn't want to get my feelings hurt. Yes. I really did. Valid. Nobody but wants their feelings. I realized that, you know what? Yeah. You know, grow up. You know, you don't <laughs> have to do this. You've been doing it forever. Because I had taken a break from all of this for a oh, while. Yeah. 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 You've been doing it forever. You know, just write the book. So I did. 
And, um, and it was, it was, it was challenging. I, I, what I learned about writing books, you've written, so, you know, yeah. what I learned about writing books is that for me anyway, the hardest obstacle I had in overcoming my resistance was that fear of criticism. That yes. Fear it, it's very, that I'm going to say the wrong thing that yeah. I'm going to. So I had to dismantle my own internalized, um, critical, thinking Mm -hmm. about kind of going off the farm to write this book that may not be well received. It was hard. It was really hard. I feel Um, that. Yeah. I I, I get that. It's, it's almost like a little bit of an internalized imposter syndrome. Who am I to be writing about this? What, this is what I believe. What if other people don't believe it? Are they going to like burn me an effigy on the internet? Like all, all the yeah. things, right? Well, mine was a little different. Mine was, I don't know if you uh, ever saw t- the uh, documentary they did on Toni Morrison. Just before she died, it was beautiful. Oh, anyway, one of the things she talked about was how she and James Baldwin, who were good friends, used to get together and talk about having to having to fight what she called the white gaze. And she said, you know, mm. that little white man who sits on your shoulder and criticizes everything you do. Yes. That, that's what it was for me. Mm. That, you know, that internalized critic that this isn't good enough. Mm. Now, one aspect of race-based stress and trauma is the internalization of not being good enough. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. so I had to bump, I bumped into my own. And I think I write about it in chapter one, where I say, I think that part of the reason this was scary for me, the the, the first chapter of the book is called uh, the wounds heal, but the scars still hurt. Yes. And I think, I'm gonna, you know, if you don't mind, since yeah. we're on the topic, it says, um, we retain a memory of our injuries, whether they are physical or psychological, even after the injury has healed and scarred over. Mm -hmm. Where scar tissue has formed, we can from time to time be reminded of the hurt. This is especially true of our deepest emotional wounds. Writing on the topic of race-based stress and trauma is like that for me. It scares me some. Maybe it's because it brings up old wounds from my past that are healed but scarred over. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I'm afraid of, afraid of encountering wounds that have yet to be healed. Mm-hmm. Racial wounding is painful, and approaching these wounds risks reopening them because race-based stress and trauma linger. But our emotional scars are the marks that tell a story of times when life really hurt us but didn't break us. Mm-hmm. They are indicators of our strength and our resilience. We need not be afraid to approach them or show them. True healing comes when you learn to face your wounds, not hide them. Yoga as a therapeutic healing modality has an important role to play in helping us face and heal our emotional wounds. That is for black, brown, white, indigenous, Latinx people, Asian people, all races, all cultural identities and ethnicities. This is not just for black people or brown people. And that's how this book was written. That also That's also what made it challenging to write from my perspective as an African-American woman um, who is sometimes racially ambiguous, mm-hmm. by the way. People yeah. don't, especially when I was younger, people yeah. did not always see a black person when they looked at me and may not yeah. now. Yeah. Um, 
because black for a lot of people um, carries with it a color. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This yeah. face. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or yeah. yeah, not this face. And so yeah. that's also part of my identity that can be, has been wounding for me, not being mm-hmm. recognized, mm-hmm. which that I think is everybody's wound, you know, but that absence of recognition of who I am and um, on, 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 you know, deeper levels of being. So anyway, so that's how I wrote the book, why I wrote the book. Um, I was absolutely stunned and gratified by how well received it continues to be. It is quoted probably weekly in my feed pictures on my Instagram feed. People talk about it. I quote it on the regular. I think it's a very important book. I'm grateful you are writing a second chapter or second volume or you're continuing the work. I think it's so useful. And uh, you and I've done a couple of, I have, workshops like you you used to come in and do the restorative part of the 200 hour teacher training that I ran and now you've done part of the 300 part um I remember we were at green tree yoga one time and it was in the beginnings like you hadn't read the book yet but you were doing these workshops and we were at green tree um yoga in California uh together Mm -hmm. and I remembered uh we were doing this workshop And what ended up happening is that I think it was intended for brown folks and black folks to really get some deep restoration. And then we had a few white folks sign up. And then there was that conversation. Do we pull back the conversation that was intended for a black or brown audience only? Or do we honestly put that information out there and see how it lands? And I loved how you very much, um, you know, engage the white folks in that room. But I remember initially the little bit of hesitancy we both had because we were like, oh, we had thought that this was going to be a space like that was going to be majority black in which it was. But we did, I think, have three people who were white in the class, which I never usually have. It's usually the flip. The class mm. is all white folks. And then there's three black folks. And one of the black folks is me. I've often been the only black face in a lot of places. And it's in a lot of um, yoga spaces where, you know, we speak about, oh, it's non-judgment. You know, it's no judgment here. It's welcoming here. Everybody's welcome here. And you step into these spaces and it's evident that you are not welcome here, that you are not part of who's on the floor. And it might not be the teacher or the staff behind the desk that treats you like you don't belong here. It might be the other students rolling out their mats next to them. And that disembodied understanding of the yoga practice where you can come and roll out your mat in a classroom, but can be completely hostile or indifferent to the person of color who's in the room next to you. And to just have that almost a a feeling of, open hostility that yoga spaces are white spaces. Or, um, and I've had this experience and I'm sure you have too, or have seen it or someone what you're in, you're in the yoga space and it's predominantly white mm-hmm. and a black person comes into the room and, and then let's say it's crowded. Yeah. A lot of space. Yeah. And a black person comes into the room and nobody moves. Yes. Nobody moves space, their and the teacher doesn't, facilitate whereas when the white person came in just before everybody moved to make the space and the teacher facilitated it it's that yeah you know it's that lack of awareness and recognition on the part of the teacher Mm -hmm. that this person 
is not being supported. Mm-hmm. Or um, I love this story. of uh, I sent a client uh, to a, a yoga studio that I thought, you know, th- th- where I had practiced. I said, I think, and she loved yoga and I and wanted to <clears throat> learn more. So I said, well, go to this studio. I'm sure it'll be fine, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. She shows up mm-hmm. in her brown skin, mm-hmm. her full body mm-hmm. with her little yoga outfit on and her little yoga mat on her shoulder and is greeted at the reception desk with, are you here for yoga? Oh, no. I'm here to get my hair done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and now, so, and, and, and to challenge that, number one, you don't want to have to number yeah. one, number yeah, two, it, it always comes as a surprise. It's never anticipated. You just don't, and you know, you just don't. Um, and it's not the only time it happens. No. And you recognize it for what it is. What do you do about that? What do you say? You know what I mean? It's 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 hard. It's difficult. And so part of the 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 book is written to to support people in understanding that what you're experiencing is real. It really is your experience. You're not making it up. Yeah. You know when you are being discriminated against or treated differently, differently, or mm-hmm. feared, or you know whatever that is, the person who's doing that may or may not be aware. Mm-hmm. May or and may not be aware. Which is the I in inclusivity in that DEI exactly. we're talking about? Yeah, I- exactly. And so I was. T- it was funny. I was talking to somebody yesterday who wanted me, who wants me to uh, teach in her program, and. Um, and she's white. And so I, as I was saying, well, what's the racial demographic? Because when I'm teaching this aspect of the practice, you know, for ethnic and race-based stress and trauma, first of all, nobody is coming to yoga to deal with race-based stress and trauma. Yeah. True. <laughs> they're not, that's not why no. they're coming. Yeah. Nobody is. Right. However. <laughs> yes. Because of the transformative nature and subversive nature of yoga, your stuff is going to come up. Yes. It's going to come up. Yeah. And if you're black, let's say, okay, let's pretend you're the person who comes in. Nobody makes room for you. Mm -hmm. It hurts your feelings. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel horrible, but you decide to stay anyway. Yeah. (sighs) And let's say the yoga teacher comes up to you afterward and says, how was it? Can you be honest? (laughs) Can you be honest? Yeah. Can you be honest? Am I, you know, should I be honest? Do I dare risk being honest? Yeah. That in and of itself creates kind of stress. It's not that the yoga teacher shouldn't ask that. Right. It's that. So in the person who has felt mistreated, misaligned, uh, misunder, not recognized, Mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it brings stuff up. Yeah. So the teacher has to be prepared to hear the answer to that question. And I would argue Unless that's a part of their awareness. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have to, as, as, as a white person, for example, not all yoga teachers are white. I'm talking right. about, right. but as a white person, if you're going to, you, you have to be prepared mm-hmm. to hear some things that you, that may be unfamiliar, mm-hmm. that may be shocking. Mm-hmm that may cause you to feel defensive. Mm-hmm. 
And am I able to stand in my own awareness of self and be mm-hmm. present for you mm-hmm. in your time of need? Mm-hmm. You need to be honest with me. Yeah. Can I receive your honesty? That's that's the work. Um, instead of getting the pushback and the I yeah, didn't mean it or no, yeah. it didn't happen or ex- explaining why you made that up or. Yeah. You know, all of those things that, that we do. Um, as to, <laughs> I mean, that that's, that's the work, you know, that's the work. And as, and for uh, the person who's been, who feels, who has experienced being othered. Yeah. Injured actually. Treated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, injured injured in that moment yeah how do i how do i deal with my own internal experience of what has occurred do i ignore it mm. do i keep on pushing mm. do i um withdraw and sink into a, a a place of immobility you know how am i responding to my own internal experience of the injury and what is and how do I find my well-being? Mm, See, moment. when you when you're racial stress and trauma are so common in this culture that we learn to ignore it. We learn to adapt, right? We adapt. Yeah. How else would you survive? Yeah. And some of our adaptations are maladaptive. So just to backtrack a little bit, we talked about that adaptation we make when we encounter that initial, you know, othering, or I called it that injury, like to me, that's injury, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, My friend Keisha and I, as two um, very black women show up to uh, a yoga class, she was running a little late because she was coming from work. I was ahead of her. So I rolled out my mat and I didn't put a placeholder next to me. Because I wanted to see, and this was a really busy class prior to the pandemic, I wanted to see if anybody would roll out their mat next to me. And the class got fuller and fuller and fuller, and yet that space next to me remained unclaimed. And then when she ran a little late, like for Keisha, running a little late means she's only five minutes early. Generally, she's like 20 minutes early, like running late for her is five minutes. And it was about two minutes after the um, the start of the class, the class started at 730, it was about 732. Uh, and then finally, at 732, this person came in and rolled out their mat next to me. And I could say to them, I'm actually saving that space. But it was amazing to me that in 2020 or 2019, at the time, that this was still going on, that people didn't want to roll out their mat next to me, and were fully, I think, unaware of that, in a yoga space. And, you know, I've seen people like get physically uncomfortable. Like, I don't know what people think is going to happen practicing next to a black person. Well, I think, first of all, two things. I'm not sure that people are unaware of that. I think if mm. you someone, they would have claimed that they were unaware of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think people are unaware of that. Hmm. I really don't. I just yeah. don't claim they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Number one. Number two, (laughs) I think that these are conditioned responses. If all, as my brother put it many years ago, if all you knew about black people is what you saw on television. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You live in segregated communities. Yeah. 
if you are not engaged, black people are most of the time. Yeah. So many of us are. We know that culture. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know us. It's true. And my question is, are you willing to get to know us? Yeah. You know, frequently the question is asked, how do I get more black people to come to my yoga classes? All the time. That's the number one question. (laughs) Into the communities of people that you claim you want in your space. Yeah. Do you engage, you know, just because you want, um, black and brown people around you. Okay. That's nice. How do you, it, it, it doesn't happen by magic. Yeah. Or osmosis. <laughs> it, it, it's intentional. You have to make efforts to, and, and advertising about it isn't the effort. No. Be willing to engage the, the people in the community. I mean, I, I, it we, seems obvious. Yeah. 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 It seems and obvious. So, and if you're not, you don't have to be. I mean, if you, you know, if you don't want to, that's okay too. Yeah. But don't expect people to come to your class then. Like don't initiate that conversation. The number one conversation I get in any of these diversity and equity trainings is how do I get more diversity into my studio? I'm thinking, how are you engaging these other communities? And are you showing up with the white savior trope one for two, you know, authentically, why do you want more diversity in your yoga class? Do you want it in your yoga class because this is a personal project for you? Like this is a personal self-fulfillment project. I'm going to better myself by engaging in other communities. And then have you done the work so that when you do show up in that other community, that you're not further traumatizing that community? That seems to be the issue. Do are people of color going to feel safe enough to relax in your space? Because when that brown person or that black person walked into the space and nobody moved their mat to make room for me, I'm holding on to that feeling for the entire practice. I came in here for a healing practice. The first three minutes into the practice, I'm traumatized because nobody is willing to make space for me um, to be in the room. And I'm just supposed to what adapt, ignore or figure that stuff out on my own in my mat. Then after class, the teacher comes up to me and goes, oh, welcome to the space. How was it for you? And I'm almost compelled in this moment to say, oh, it was a wonderful practice. I love the way you did whatever, as opposed to it really hurt when I came into the space and nobody moved their mat. And you didn't say, because what I usually say in these situations is everybody move up. Because the minute you get everybody to move up, space seems to magically find a hole in the center or off to the side. Like that you didn't have the awareness to see that I was, you know, struggling in this moment and come to my aid, which is basically your job as a teacher. When I'm looking out into the studio space, I'm looking at how I can make this practice as interesting and adaptable and inclusive and equitable as I can. And you miss that first pillar, that first calling of nonviolence by not stepping up and saying, I see a situation happening. I'm aware of the situation happening. Yes, I'm uncomfortable. The situation is happening because that's the job of your yoga practice is to sit with your discomfort, to be aware of it, to notice it and either do something about it when that discomfort is disrupting the entire essence of the class and not just my own personal experience and you didn't do anything like what's the point of the teacher to stand up there and call out poses 
because it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't I can't tell you how I just watched. It was just an observation. I'm not going to put a placeholder here because generally I'll take a towel or a water bottle mm-hmm. and hold space for somebody. I'm not going to put a placeholder here. And I'm going to watch this yoga class that generally has 30 or 40 people in it, fill up and see how many people are actually going to roll out their mat for me. And it was only under duress that somebody decided to roll up their mat that they were just running out of space everywhere else but I'm going to roll up my mat next to the black person now here's the responsibility I think of the person who is being avoided yes (laughs) I think we have a responsibility to say something about it I really do I mean I I think now we may not be prepared to do that you know what I'm saying you just may not have it in you in that moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I really do think that that is, that's where the responsibility in healing one's own um, suffering Mm. associated Mm -hmm. with these kinds of incidents Mm -hmm. important because it's empowering Mm -hmm. and, and, it is an act of, you know, you're, you are a social justice activist, actively doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I am too, I guess, but in a different yeah. kind of way. But totally but you are. A willingness to step up and not have a fight with anybody. No, yeah. But from a place of that equanimity, that, that balanced place of well-being, this mm. is why cultivate well-being so that we can come from that place of well-being to express in the moment what has occurred, mm-hmm. how it affected me, and what I think ought to happen. That's our work. Absolutely. That's hard to do. It it's is. To do. It's know, actually it's, scary for some folks, right? It's it, Well, it, no, it's always scary. Yeah. That's another thing I have with we have to make a safe space. Well, yeah, we do, except that this is not safe work. Mm, yeah. This is courageous work. This yes. Takes, it takes courage. Yes. Into that level of vulnerability and authenticity, mm. which, by the way, for black and brown people particularly, has been and continues to be a dangerous place to be. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. My favorite, one of my favorite quotes is by D.L. Hughley. The most dangerous place that black people reside is in the imaginations of white folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so setting aside all of that stuff, right. To actually see the person who's in front of you and interact with the person who's in front of you and see how that person is being treated in that space and step into that. That's, and that's hard to do if you are conditioned not to do that. If you're colorblind. Mm, yes, yes, yes. These are the things we have to do as practitioners. This is the self-study work that we're talking about. This is the self-awareness that you mentioned at the very beginning and the onset of this podcast. Yeah. And I think it's amazing we're out there teaching yoga and have a deep disconnection to our own self-awareness. I was out for dinner last Friday with a group of um, my son's my son graduated from the eighth grade, you know, back in June. And we had like a get together with all the moms whose kids have gone from, you know, SK up to grade 
eight and, you know, and we'd been on all the field trips and we've done all the things together. And it was kind of like a, it was the last hurrah for me. Um, I don't know if those women continue to meet together. So there were seven or eight of us, all of them white. I'm the only black person there. And I sit down to dinner. And of course, there's always a conversation around my hair, which I'm tired of answering. I've been answering questions about my hair since I was probably six years old. I'm 51. I don't want to have conversations about it anymore, but people don't seem to understand that. Um, And we sat down and one of the women at the table said to me, um, hey, I thought a lot about you last summer when George Floyd died in the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, do you think everything has changed? And I was like, uh, what exactly has changed? You painted in Washington Square, wherever it is, Black Lives Matter on the road that keeps being vandalized by fear, that keeps having to be reinstated and vandalized. There's been no change in legislation. There's been no equity or equitable laws that have been changed to change anything, uh, just a bunch of performative action. And then she tried to open her mouth to tell me that I wasn't seeing it the way that um, she was seeing it and that change actually is happening. And I just felt like saying to her, and then when she was opening her mouth to say that, I just said, this has been my experience and my perspective. And that closed her mouth because she couldn't, she couldn't say anything to that because I was speaking to my experience. And what is amazing to me is that willful ignorance that we think that these performative unembodied actions of social justice actually lead to change because I don't believe that they do. It's only an embodied practice, I think, that leads to change. It's only when you can actually see somebody else's suffering and have some kind of awareness of that or feeling of that, that things actually change. What are your thoughts? I think it's actually, I think it's, it's only when you're aware of and have dealt with your own suffering. Mm, yes. You can then be present mm-hmm. for someone else's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, when and and again, we live in a culture in the United States, anyway, where oh, here too. <laughs> yeah. So the, the I think the the underlying belief is that in the dominant culture is that we shouldn't have to suffer. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, the, and so therefore, we're always trying to avoid it or be, or we're mad about it. <laughs> Instead of recognizing that no suffering yeah. is part of life. Yeah. And yeah. when we can deal with our own suffering, mm. our own suffering, and take a deep dive into that and unpack that, um, I think now we're making some progress. I, I, yeah. Because I'm trying to manage your suffering. Mm. I can't do my own. Well, first of all, I can't manage your suffering. All right. I can bear witness to it. Again, isn't that what our yoga and meditation practices teach us? To bear witness. Observe. Mm. You know, we mm-hmm. teach that a meditative mind isn't a quiet mind. It's an observed. It's an observing mind. Mm. Observed mind. You know, I'm paying attention to my own thoughts. I'm paying attention to my own suffering. I'm paying attention to my own indifference to your mm. suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or whatever that is, you know. Um, this is personal work. It's deep work. It's hard work. It's hard work. It really it's, is. And so it really everybody is. isn't, that's why everybody isn't doing it. 
Yeah, understood. Like it, it goes back to what my mother always says to me. If it were easy, Diane, everybody would do it. She would always say that to me when we were growing up. So I want to ask you, just as we're coming up on the hour already, I want to ask you about your next book. Can you tell us a little bit about how this work continues to evolve in this in this second volume, if you will? So the next book evolved out of the first book and it came, it was an answer to the question that people were asking me over and over and over again in these webinars. Well, how do I do that? Right. Apply what you have learned. Yeah. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah. How do, how do I do that? How do I shine a light on my own um, pain and suffering? For example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I, I, I owed it to people to have an answer to that question. <laughs> Damn, dang it. <laughs> yeah. I can't keep saying you have to do the practice. Right. I mean, yeah. People I used more. to have a radio show called Ask the Psychologist and I would, I named it Stump the Shrink. I mean, so it was like <laughs> kind of that. The answer to that question was, I don't know how to answer that question. Right. <laughs> I took some time and I said, okay, let me see. I, I, I have to answer this question. So yeah. the, the, the second book is called Transforming um, Ethnic and Race-Based Traumatic Stress with Yoga, because I think, it's, I, I think it's important that we begin to change the narrative, mm-hmm. that we not only, that we don't remain stuck in our mm-hmm. trauma, mm-hmm. but we, that we recognize that it is possible to access that place of well-being in the midst of trauma. Mm, That's the inner yeah. That's yeah. hard to do. Because yeah. why? Because first we have to go through really a dark night of the soul to get there, to get on the other side of that, mm. to, to digest and process what has happened. I heard, you know, it was interesting yesterday. I was listening to some, one of the um, black police officers who was um, uh, traumatized in the, the capital, you know, uh, insurrection that we had. Yes. I'm trying to see if I wrote it down. It was so profound uh, what he said. He, but basically what he said is he said, on top of I was being beaten and trying to save other people's lives, people were calling me the N-word. Mm. He said, you can't process that kind of trauma in the moment. You he can't. said it takes, it take, it takes, a while that takes some distance to be able to process it. Mm-hmm. He said, and to unpack all of that in and, and to have to deal with being called the N word while I'm trying to save these people's lives. He said, it's, I, I barely have words to explain. Oh, I can only imagine. How that is. And so, but, but, but he's willing to unpack it. That's what I found most interesting. This second book, it tells us how to do that. Mm-hmm. This is how do how do I learn to process and digest the the pain and suffering that I have not been able to heal mm-hmm. that keeps me stuck in trauma keeps mm-hmm. me stuck in maladaptive responses to these race related events mm-hmm. and um, so I tell stories about how to do that. And then I, and then I, about, about why it's important and what it, what constitutes race-based stress and trauma. Mm-hmm. And then I you, teach how to use various postures and affirmations to support the reclamation, for example, of innocence. Huh. Black and brown children lose their innocence. 
So early. Yeah, so early. You have to grow up fast when you're yeah. growing in a you know, racially hostile environment and your parents know it and you know, you, you, you have to teach your kids to grow up fast. Mm-hmm. So the reclamation of innocence can be found, I think, embodied in child's pose. Yes. When you say affirmations that support that, you know, I feel innocent, I feel free, you know, while you're in the Mm -hmm. So that's how the book is written. So I I think I offer 10 postures and 10 possibilities for reclaiming Mm -hmm. self-worth, self-love, how to practice patience. Uh, transforming consciousness. I have all of that in there. It's good. I like it a lot. I love it. Yeah, I, I can't wait. The, I just got the final proofs uh, yesterday. So I'm rereading it before I send it in and it'll be printed pretty soon. Um, yeah, it's re- it's nice. It's a nice companion guide to the first volume. The first volume is more, it, it, it lays out the theory and the science of mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is the application of yes. all of that. And so it's nice. Uh, it sounds divine. And I mean, having taken a couple of classes with you while you were in the process of writing the second volume, I see how that works. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, it, it's very powerful. And I would I would tell my our listeners, if you haven't had an opportunity a, to get the first volume of the book, buy it any race, any ethnicity, any culture, it it all applies. You will pull something out of it that will help you, you know, reconcile some feelings for yourself, help you understand your own uh, humanity and your own feelings better. And then the second guide, I, I feel is a must because I think it gives, from what you explain, it gives us really concrete practices that we can do on the daily, not even if we're in a restorative pose, but we can relive or revisit that place on the daily when we are smacked between the eyes often. It's often you you don't see it coming, right? You don't see it coming. No, it hits you between the eyes and you need that you need that voice in your head <laughs> to help you go, okay, this is how we're going to process this moment, right? And I think that companion guide, that second volume is going to be a must. I think both books, if, if you're a practitioner or a teacher, I think both books are a must, especially if you're interested in this work. You can't, you know, you have to learn about it. Yeah, you do. You have, you have to be in it, and right? you have to learn about it from your own perspective, regardless of your own race and ethnicity. And that's how both of the books have been written. It invites you. Yes. written from my perspective because that's every book. Is that's the only one you can write. Yeah. But yeah. I make that clear. But. All of this is applicable. You so if you can, as I said, the the, the art is the application of mm-hmm. what you're learning and the skill. And <clears throat> that's beautiful. I can't wait. I'm I pre-ordered mine, so I'm excited. So I wanted to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions so our listeners can get to know you um, a little bit more personally. There's nothing really personal in there, but I just I wanted to do this little rapid fire. I did this on a podcast. And I thought it was kind of fun. So I'm just going to throw a, a question out there and you, you just tell me. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Coffee. All right. Sweet or salty? Both. Both. I, I love, love that. <laughs> Ocean or mountains? Mountains. <laughs> I am. All about that. Resting or active? Oh, my. Yike. Um, I know, right? That's a hard okay. one. To be honest. 
Active. I like active. I do. I active like, you know, as the balance of stillness, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think you can truly appreciate stillness 100% unless you know what the other side of that coin is, kind of thing, right? What is your favorite quote? My favorite. If you haven't. Oh, God. Yeah. If you have one. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. What is a quote you've heard recently that you thought, huh, well, that's interesting? <laughs> Stump the shrink. Ah, I love that. Stump the shrink. Yes. There you go. And I just did it. I just did it. I get a prize. Um, uh, what's your favorite book or what book are you currently reading? One or the other. Um, I love my favorite book is the alchemist. And I, I love that book. I've read it many, many times. And I just read a book of course, the name I cannot remember right now because I just read it, you know, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually it's the scientific, um, uh, it's a, it's a therapeutic approach to, to alchemy. How alchemy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. It was good. Interesting. Interesting. I love it. I I like alchemy. And do you have a mantra? Is there something that you say to yourself on the regular? And you, I mean, you don't have to share the exact mantra, but is there like a something that lifts you up when you're feeling like, oh, today's going to be a long day, or I just need something to calm my mind in the moment? Is there something that you say to yourself that helps you? Yeah, I, think, I think one of the things that I say all the time is growth continues. Ah, I got that from you. I like yeah, that one. I remember a client, you, my clients used to come uh, to see me when I was doing psychotherapy. And again, I'd greet them at the door. How are you? And people would say it's been a growth week. <laughs> <laughs> we, know that, we know what that means. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so been a growth week. Yeah. My, my favorite Gail quote or mantra that I use is when I'm running late, I'm like, I have all the time in the world. That's, That's the one I use a lot that you say and growth continues. Yes. It's in the new book. Yeah. It must be. I'm always like that. Yeah. I have all the time in the world. Yeah. So that's why. That, what difference does it make? A huge difference. And what's really miraculous is it opens up time and space. I don't yeah. know why putting it out there. All of a sudden, I'm not as concerned with time because I feel I have time. And I always show up on time, even though I'm running late. I know. Isn't that it's amazing? amazing. It's amazing. I know. I th- it just like, I feel my shoulders peel away from my ears. I feel my grip on the steering wheel relax. I feel the tension in my body drift out. A couple of deep breaths and I, rep- I repeat that mantra and it takes effect in such an amazing way. And I show up on time. I'm not early, but <laughs> I show up on time. That's the alchemy. So, you know, mm-hmm. alchemists, the old alchemists used to turn lead into gold. Wow. That's our work. Come on. Turn our lead into gold. That's that place of well-being, that mm-hmm. inner place that we all have. We just have to figure out how to how to get find there. It how to, how to get there. It. That's it's the like point. it's deep and we have to get at it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you for this beautiful conversation. I am always in such awe 
every conversation I have with you, I learn something. Uh, I am grateful for your teachings, your presence, and I loved seeing you on the front of Yoga Journal. I know you can't still get that copy, but it was, yeah, show us the copy. Um, I had mine. I actually framed that. I framed, I pulled off the front page and I framed it. I'll take a picture of it and send it to you because it was amazing to see that, right? Because the front of that magazine has been lacking any kind of um, diversity or what I like to think like what... An, an average everyday person can identify with like to look at you in that they did a beautiful job with the cover they like they did a beautiful job and it really speaks to the essence of who you are when the minute I saw it I felt like that is how I see you in my mind's eye so I was really grateful for that I had heard I had talked to the uh, editor-in-chief prior to that magazine coming out she didn't tell me that you were on the cover and she goes she said to me I can't wait until you see who's on, you know, the next cover. It was, was it the February or March cover? May. May, June issue. And we spoke, I think in April and she said to me, um, I can't wait for you to see who's on the cover. I can't tell you, but your mind is going to be blown away. And I just started going through the list of people that I thought needed to be on the cover. And you came to mind and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to wait and see. I'm not going to ask because you can't tell anyway. But uh, I was thrilled to see you on the cover. And I, I'm happy for this change. I'm happy for this work. And I'm happy for the way that you've impacted uh, this community and this culture. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So where can people find you if they want to get your work? I'm going to share a link to your books, but where can they find you? Um, um, the website is um, easy, drgaleparker.com. There you go. Perfect. And I will link to that in the show notes as well. I'll link to where you can pre-order the book and where you can get um, the current book, which you can buy everywhere. But if you can, I always like to support a local independent bookseller, but you can get this on Amazon mm -hmm. uh, and other places. So thank you very much for your time today, Gail. And as always, growth continues, right? <laughs> Thanks for the invitation, Diane. I appreciate I appreciate you and everything that you do, all that you, you are and all that you do. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Until next time, let's make our well-being our priority. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I hope you learned something. I hope it felt embodied. And I'll share with you in the show notes all the places that you can connect with Dr. Gail Parker um, and be a part of her world, right? And quite frankly, you can hit her up on her website, drgailparker.com. I'm excited for you to explore her work, to buy her book, to do all the things. Thank you so much for listening to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. We are excited that you are here. But can you do us a small favor if you get a chance and if it's in your heart to go ahead on Apple Podcasts and rate us, subscribe, like, and share. It really does help the podcast get out there into the world. And I'm excited to share with you the people that I meet and our path together to intentional well-being. I'll see you next time.